Hey, what's up everyone out there in a primo land. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Marketing Cheat Codes. Each episode, we've been getting into marketing insights from industry leaders, just thoughts, tips, tricks, insights they've gained from leveling up and slaying the bosses in marketing, the game that we all play and know that never ends. This week, we're going deep into demand gen data and why you're only good as your content, whether you're a local dentist or a global brand. I'm Sam Chapman, content director at Primo, joined as always by our CMO, Ed Briel. Ed, who are we talking to this week? Amanda McGuckenhager. She is a fractional CMO, very strategic, results-driven, and highly decorated marketer. She's actually on some top 10 lists, as well as a top 50 Austin techies to follow. And even her content is highly ranked. Yeah, I mean, I know firsthand, full transparency, Amanda and I have worked in the past together. And yeah, Amanda knows everybody in Austin in the tech scene. Um, A great resource, you know, an an A game to have in your network. And a lot of the stuff that I've learned as a marketer, as a content director, I picked up in the time working with Amanda. So not only is she a wealth of knowledge, knows everybody, uh, but just a a great leader and a good human being. That's clear. Yeah, we also talk about some topics around the rise of first party data, death of the cookie and some really strong topics. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, yeah, thought leadership, you know, no matter the size, the importance of word of mouth, a lot of great topics for our audience. So let's get right into it and I will catch you on the flip side, Ed. Here we go. Bye, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Sam, through the crowd. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of Marketing Cheat Codes. My name is Ed Brialt, CMO at Aprimo, and I'm here with a very special guest. And you've got lots of credentials here. We're going to unpack those. Amanda McGuckin-Hager from Austin. Amanda, how are you? I'm doing well, Ed. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, so you're, like I mentioned earlier, you're not hard to research. You've been putting a lot of uh, awesome content out there in the world of the tech space, marketing. We're going to be t- today. We'll be talking about data analytics. We'll be talking about the rise of first-party data, which I think is um, it is is paramount right now. It's a it is a we must do that. It's it's part of a marketer's responsibilities now is to look at our first-party data as a major asset of the company. Um, so now you've got some pretty cool achievements. Austin's top 10 B2B lead gen marketers, the top 200 voices in big data and analytics. I want to talk about big data too. Um, The top 50 Austin techies to follow on Twitter and marketing Sherpas, which is an awesome uh, place for great content. You've got the top three inbound case studies uh, in, in 2014. So how did you get all those credentials? What's your origin story. Where did you get started? Where does Amanda get started in her career? Well, funny enough, Amanda got started about nine years old at my kitchen table doing my first direct mail campaign, direct to consumer, you know, B2C mail campaign, working with my mom who was in real estate. And this was before the internet and uh, things were very different then. So we did a lot of gluing pictures to flyers and then stuffing envelopes and mailing them out. That's how we did real estate back then. Nice. Um, 
I grew up in a family. My mom was obviously in real estate. My father was a town dentist. It was a small town. And a lot of what I learned from them is that your network is everything. Um, all of their business came through their network. And and um, that's really how I've gotten all these accolades, just uh, growing and expanding my network. I started in marketing proper, selling digital advertising. So a little bit of sales, but in that marketing space, I went on to uh, an MDR or BDR role. Um, and you know, wow. yeah. even back then, those teams sort of swing between marketing and sales, marketing and sales. And when I was on the marketing team, I loved it. When my BDR team swung over to sales and suddenly we had quotas and activities, you know, levels that we had to hit every day, I was like, this is less fun for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't love this as much. And so I realized at that point, I really want to be in marketing. That's what I want to do. So I just, with intention, took every job that I could, you know, as um, sort of as directly as possible. Like I know I need to do email. So I went to Dell and did email for a year and a half and that has served me so well. Um, I know that I need to know some SEO. I had an employer that uh, certified me in SEO. It's well outdated now and hardly applicable, but at that point, it was great. So, yeah. That's awesome. Tons of respect for being an SDR, BDR in your career. I was at one point as well. That is like the, that is the fine line between blood, sweat, tears, and money. Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great way to put it. Yeah. You're, uh, anybody's ability to um, think about the mental toughness you've forged being uh, in a, a BDR or an SDR. It's like you have an objective and you're going to figure out a way to get there. And I think the magic of that role, now that you have that as a marketing leader and strategist, you know how important messaging, positioning, tying value proposition to somebody's problem at the right point in time, uh, those getting those things aligned, figured out as an organization is the difference between growth and uh, going out of business. Yeah, you're, you're so right. I, I think that experience gave me, as you mentioned, just uh, the, a lot of resilience, right? You get told no a lot and you build a thicker skin and like you said, it also is very creative. You have to find your path and you try different things and see what works and and keep iterating on your message, your, your playbooks, et cetera. Um, and I think that experience gave me the understanding of what a good lead is. And, you know, most of my career, I focused on demand generation and I've done that with intention. I, I thought, well, I don't want to close deals. I don't want to be in sales, but if I'm constantly feeding the sales team, I will always have a job. I will have job security for the rest of my career. This is something I can focus on. And having been a BDR and hearing from sales, that was a good lead or that wasn't a good lead and here's why, was really invaluable to setting me up for a really great career in demand gen. Absolutely. Yeah, the, I, the tip of the spear for for sales is, is marketing and demand generation. Like, you know, um, marketing is the leading indicator of, uh, of sales. Sales is a leading indicator of customer experience. You've got to have a very strong front end marketing uh, engine mm -hmm. uh, to be a growth organization. It's a great place to be. Uh, it's a hard place to be uh, because it can be hard. the word generation 
means you need to create something mm-hmm. from possibly nothing, right? It's not like you're being fed and or you're being, um, you're servicing demand, you're generating. That's the fun you're, part. <laughs> that's the part I love. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the magic of um, of marketing, right? It's it's the um, the quantitative, qualitative, left brain, right brain, art, science, those sorts of things. Understanding an audience, building an audience, getting in front of that audience, uh, having empathy for that audience, uh, creating that value exchange with that audience. Um, and now this is marketing cheat codes. And one of the things we want to talk today about you've got some cheat codes that you brought today we want to get to those before we do though marketing cheat codes we like to ask you a little bit about if you had any history and or ever played video games or um do you have any video game stories for us i don't play video games myself but i have two adult children that play a lot of video games um in my 20s i played a lot of duke nukem Nice. That dates me. Yeah. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, it was really fun, though. I enjoyed it. Um, lately, I play a lot of Words with Friends. I don't know if that counts as a video game, but that's what I play. That's awesome. So let's talk about one of your cheat codes you brought here today, the rise of first-party data. At one point in time, we didn't have enough data. Then we had too much data. Then we had like the four V's of data, volume, variety, velocity, veracity of data. And now there's like all this intent data out there. There's this data available on third-party networks. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of changes going on, regulations, um, Mm -hmm. privacy. Why is owning your data, your first-party data, uh, so important now with, with a marketing organization to run the business properly. You know, it's funny. Um, I started inbound marketing 10 or 12 years ago. And um, at the time, the what we did, the play that we did was build the database with the ideal prospect, you know, who you think is the ideal prospect as much as you could, and then nurture that database so that when it became the buying cycle of those prospects, you were top of mind. Your company was top of mind. And then they would come inbound, right? That was, in short, it's a lot more complex than that. But as a quick executive summary, that's what it was. Here we are, you know, today, and we have new privacy regulations, right? We have GDPR in Europe. We have, uh, is it PIPL in China, if any companies do business in China. We have California that has its own privacy. You know, even, I think it's West Virginia or Virginia, all these states are coming up with their own data privacy laws. You have Canada as well. So, how does a company that does business, you know, in the United States, even globally, manage compliance with all of these things? It's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. Um, and what it comes, all those things come back to, in my mind, we also, I should, I failed to mention, we have the depreciation of third-party cookies, which is coming down the road too, right? So what these external pressures, I think, just come back to that original strategy of growing your database, right? Which we now know is first party data. And and we're sort of back where we started of always be growing your database. How do you do it? How do you get there? You know, the, the, the cheat code, if you will, is I, I believe content, right? Like you mentioned at the value exchange, you're exchanging something of value for permission to email that person in the future. And that content has to be 
valuable, right? It has to be valuable to them. Or why would I, you know, why would I submit to your emails every week if it's not relevant or valuable to me? So, um, yeah, I think more and more marketers are going to be looking at how do you grow your database? How do you grow first party data? One of the things that I've heard uh, Nick Barber, a forester, talk about, which is data and content together. Mm-hmm. And if you have, so if you have 10 pieces of data and 10 pieces of content, you effectively have 100 permutations of an experience. Mm-hmm. Why is it that so data and content working together are so important? The, in my mind, I, I can only assume what he's talking about is the personalization and, and to Absolutely. you, you know, to your point of value exchange, right? And the more personalized I can get and the more targeted I can get, the more valuable my content will be to you. At least that's what I hope. Um, I've, uh, I've, you know, I've worked in a lot of large companies, you know, public companies, Dell, Rackspace, SolarWinds. Um, but I've also been in a lot of startups and in startups, efficiency is really important and um, getting sort of complex in those permutations. I, I tend to stay away from, I, I do try and keep it simple. I'm always implementing um, the cost benefit analysis, right? Like what's it going to cost me in time or money um, and effort and what's the benefit I'm going to get out of it. So I, the, you know, I hate to be so trite, but the 80, 20 rule comes into play there too. You know, I don't want to go out and do a hundred permutations personally, as a marketer, if I had large teams and we had the budget and that was the way to do it. But if I could do 20 that I think will apply to most, you know, most of the people in my database, then that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I think where it gets, where that scale curve comes, we look at technology to, to fill some of those gaps, um, machine, machine learning, AI, potentially mm-hmm. uh, filling those gaps, uh, looking at the data, looking at the, um, the modularity of content to actually create some experiences. Mm-hmm. If, if we have technology that can, you know, reference the data, knows who we're talking to, could potentially generate a, a dynamic experience. That's uh, that's that's one way, or you know, some mm-hmm. some key areas of real activity that can be um, found with that that marriage of tech and content and and the data. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I remember at Dell, you know, over a decade ago, we were doing, this might've been 15 years ago, we dynamic content was fairly new. And so we were trying our hand at dynamic emails. Um, and I remember it being a bear of a project. Like this is, this is hard. This is complex. Like trying to write content for all those, like you say, permutations and variables. And it was, um, I think it's gotten a lot easier (laughs) since then. Yeah. So let's bring it to some of the hot topics in your world right now, some of your burning platform items. I know we talked about the rise of first-party data. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other things that you're really passionate about, projects you're working on that um, are moving your your activities, your business forward? Well, currently I'm a consultant, and so I have you know five or six clients that I'm working with, and um, you know, I, I love this. I love this work because I get to see all these different market problems and, and look at all these different, uh, variables that impact, you know, and goals and, and budgets. And there's just, it's quite fun. Um, you know, some of my clients were doing a lot of planning. It's, it's November. 
uh, right now. And so we're looking at H1 planning. Um, and that is one of my favorite things to do. Uh, you know, this is kind of like the Tetris game, if you will, for me, it's taking all these different pieces and parts and how do you fit it all together to hit the objectives. Um, so I'm doing that with a couple clients right now and they're, it's also very different, but it's something I really love. That's all. Can we double click on that? Yeah, yeah. Because right now planning is one of my favorite topics to talk about. There's annual, you know, there's rolling, there's, we're never done planning. Right. When you think about planning, we talked about first party data, of course, but then content. When you think about content planning, what are some of the, when we're in this strategy phases, contents in the equation, what are folks thinking about? Are they putting the their audiences at the center of that planning and developing content strategies? from a, So from a content planning standpoint, what are some of your clients uh, doing in terms of practice? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, I, I would, I call it content pillars. Some people call it content anchors. Um, but every, I, and I do mostly quarterly planning, sometimes half planning and annual planning, but quarterly is the execution, you know, just like the financial schedules of most companies. Um, you know, that financial schedule sets the sales goals and those sales goals set the marketing goals, right? So, um, generally speaking, I like to have one, maybe two content pillars or, you know, content anchors, some call them lead magnets, whatever you want to call them. Um, and it just depends. Each company is a little bit different. Sometimes they are doing their own research and publishing reports. Sometimes they are, um, some of my clients are looking at purchasing rights to analyst reports to serve. That's an, if you have the budget, that's an easy way to get some nice content in the market. Um, yeah, some, one of my clients just, um, did an amazing research with a third party, uh, and are publishing, published a really, really great report that, you know, as any of these pillars, they can spin off into, blogs and social media content and infographics and emails and, you know, podcasts and it runs the gamut. Um, but yeah, that's, um, mostly research reports. Some are doing some white papers, um, and thought leadership type things from their own perspective. I think you have to be pretty mature as an organization to be able to say, this is what we see going on in the market and this is our perspective mm -hmm. on it and absolutely. to have it really resonate. Yeah. So. I mean, we're, yeah, absolutely. Being a thought leader, owning ideas, you've got to be producing, producing uh, content of value. You have to be discoverable. And I mean, just, that's just one of the main, it, it's very difficult of course, to get there, to get, to be established as a thought leader, but there's so much staying power. Mm -hmm. Once you get to that and people consume your ideas, you're the place to go. That's, that's where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And anything that brings value to the market, right? Like, um, I know in the past, I'm not doing them now, but in the past we've done, um, some really successful programs have been how to guides. You know, we looked at the big data company. We looked at how we would approach a new big data project with a client. And then we captured that into how to do a big data project, right? You might not be working with us to do it and that's okay. Here's how you do it. And it was part um, how to guide, part template. 
Um, and the beauty of that was that if anyone downloaded it, we knew they had a big data project going on. Right. We also knew that 50% of big data projects failed. So if and when they were successful, great, we helped them get there. If and then when they, if the project failed by chance, well, hey, we're top of mind and hopefully they come into us for some help. So that's brilliant that you got really there at a moment, you knew it, you knew the opportunity was there and you were there at that moment of need and uh, offered that value exchange. Yeah, that one was a good one. That was fun. Absolutely. Well, Amanda, thanks for coming on the show today. Um, thank you for dropping your cheat code. Um, where do folks get in touch with you? That's a great question. I'm on LinkedIn. They can find me there. I was uh, very, very early on the day that they released custom URLs. And so my LinkedIn address is Amanda. It's literally Amanda. It's linkedin.com slash in slash Amanda. So people can find me there. That's what you get for being a first mover. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Amanda, thank you for sharing all your cheat codes today. Thank you, Ed. It was so nice to meet you. It was a lot of fun. Cheers. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today for another episode of Marketing Cheat Codes. I want to thank our guests for their time and everyone out there in a primo land for listening. This episode was written, mixed, and produced by Glenn McManus. Our associate producer is Noah Horberg. Our production coordinator is Izzy Herbst. And our creative director is Sonny Okamoto. Our series is hosted by Ed Brield. And I'm your co-host, Sam Chapman. If you like what you're hearing, please rate us or review us everywhere you listen to podcasts and be sure to keep the conversation going by following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you have a topic you'd like to hear us discuss or want to be a guest, head on over to the URL in the episode description and drop us a line. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>